Welcome to the Catholic Cafe, where all that the Catholic Church believes and teaches is served fresh daily. So come on in and see what's on the menu today. Now, here's your host, Deacon Jeff Drzymski. And welcome one and all to the Catholic Cafe. I'm Deacon Jeff, and we're once again broadcasting from the luxurious corner booth at the Catholic Cafe. And sitting next to me, as always, tried and true, is my friend Tom Dorian. Hello, Tom. Hello, Deacon Jeff. How are you today? You know what? I'm doing great, Tom. You look great. I appreciate that. Hey, what are we going to be cooking up today? Well, we got some... Actually, I'm not doing any cooking today. That's a good thing. We got a, uh, we got a chef as a guest. Excellent. We'll get that in a second. But what we are talking about today... Yes. ...is the Eucharist. The Eucharist, yes. Absolutely. And we have to understand that for many non-Catholics, and perhaps even to some degree, many Catholics... The church's teachings on the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist can be a bit of a stumbling block. Absolutely. So uh, we have to figure out what does the church actually teach about the real presence and, and where does this teaching come from? When asked about why the church teaches this particular doctrine, you know, many Catholics will start that stammering and stuttering yeah. that they do. And, Tom, I, I know I've seen you do this personally <laughs> where you actually act like you're cell phone is on vibrate and you're getting a call and you got you got to take this important call you can't not when it comes to this topic but yes you're right i have used that technique before <laughs> i understand so non-catholics as well and those who were baptized catholic many years ago they also may have some genuine questions about where all this real presence stuff of came course from. yes so hopefully after the next half hour or so we'll be able to offer a little insight into this obviously very important topic should I get Laney over here and uh, get a refill on our cups of coffee? Um, you know what? I think I'm going to have a uh, Diet Cola. Okay. I'll get right on that. All right. So send her on over here. And as we always say here at the Catholic Cafe, three heads are better than two. Um, so we have asked our guest to join us to come and help us out here. And our guest, as he makes his way to the table, is Father Ben Bradshaw. Father Ben is a priest for the Diocese of Memphis in Tennessee. And, uh, Father, have a seat here in the luxurious corner booth and grab a microphone. <laughs> How and, you doing? Uh, we're doing just great. Right, Hello, you. Father. How are things going? Great. So, Father, you know, the most important thing that I want to talk about today, besides the Eucharist, is the fact that, that you have a culinary background. You've got a culinary <laughs> history. You're a chef, right? <laughs> um, before I went in the seminary, I was trained as a chef. That's right. Yep. I, was, um, I spent about 10 years uh, working for different chefs and... And actually living in different countries, I lived in um, part of the time in Italy and spent some time in Russia, um, went to school in, in Paris, France, and then actually went to three different cooking schools, uh -huh. one in Charleston, South Carolina, one in Vermont, and then one in Paris for pastry. So it's fun. There's worse ways to spend a day than eating chocolate. <laughs> and so somehow either uh, you received a call while uh, putting together uh, some kind of puff pastry or something. Uh, somehow you managed to make it into the seminary and uh, and became a priest for the diocese. That's right. That's right. I I think when I was um, when I was in Russia, that's really when I started thinking more about it. And it was uh, it was about that time. I, I spent four months in Russia, and I started thinking more about it and praying more about it. And I had time. Right in front of the Blessed Sacrament, we're talking about the Eucharist today, and right in front of the Blessed Sacrament uh, to, to spend time with Jesus, thinking about it and saying, maybe God is calling me to go deeper in my vocation. I loved cooking. I still do. And I began to think, you know, maybe Lord is calling me to this and to pray more about it. 
And when I got back from Russia, I remember that I set up a, a little kind of mini chapel in my house where I would go and spend, do kind of a holy hour in my house. I didn't have the Blessed Sacrament, but I had a statue of the Blessed Mother. And I would just go and spend time in prayer and, and say, you know, Lord, are you calling me to this? Like, do you really want me to do this? And the more I did that, the more I felt called to spend time in Eucharistic adoration. So I would go to a Blessed Sacrament Chapel and spend time face-to-face with Christ, you know, and, and, and how powerful that was. And it was like radiation therapy, mm-hmm. <laughs> being there in the presence of Christ, because everything that we have is laid open to our Savior right there in that moment. And so uh, for me, that definitively changed changed my life and I thought so much about Peter getting out of the boat you know when he in the storm and they see Jesus coming on the water and and you know Peter says Lord if it's you tell me to get out of the boat and I will come to you and he waits for the Lord to give him the call and so he gets out of the boat and he comes and and he's walking on water and so I really felt that passage specifically had a deep impact on me and I thought you know Lord with your grace maybe I can accept this vocation well, it's wow. really yeah. uh, it's really great that you're sharing with us a profound experience that happened to you, and it was wrapped around the presence of Christ in the Eucharist. Um, and so, hopefully, as we delve deeper into this real presence, we'll get a better sense of exactly what the real presence means. In fact, why don't we dive into that, Father? Just in a nutshell, if you can give us the Catholic perspective and teaching on what the real presence is. Mm. The, the real presence, when we talk about the real presence of Christ, we are saying that Jesus Christ is 100% present, body, blood, soul, and divinity within the Blessed Sacrament. And so it's not that this is part Jesus Christ and part bread. This is 100% Jesus Christ present. And we know this specifically, uh, people say, well, where do you get this? How can you possibly make this claim? For those of us that have grown up Catholic, most Catholics will, will affirm that we have to rediscover a Eucharistic sense of presence, you know, that we need to rediscover the fact that this is Jesus Christ. And people say, well, where do you get this in Scripture? And constantly our Lord is referring to this as many Eucharistic references, but specifically John chapter 6, um, our Lord says more than five times, I believe, in this one passage. My flesh is true food. My blood is true drink. Unless you eat the flesh of, of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life within you. And so many of the disciples, it says, they turned and walked away, and they said, how can we possibly believe this? Where, do, where does he get this? How can we possibly believe this? And he doesn't stop them. He lets them go, and he says, and he turns to Peter, and he says, do you also want to leave? And we can imagine it's kind of an awkward moment for the disciples, you know, and everybody turns to Peter and say, well, what are we, what are we going to do? You know, and Peter says, Lord, to whom do we turn? You know, you have the words of eternal life. We've come to believe that you're the Christ. And very, very beautiful because this is in some ways um, the crux of everything we believe right here in this passage. In the first document that the Council Fathers wrote in the Second Vatican Council in 1962 to 1965 was on the liturgy. The very first one they wrote was on the liturgy. It was called Sacrosanctum Concilium, the Constitution on Sacred Liturgy. And they specifically addressed the liturgy first because it is everything that we are. And of the 16 documents they wrote in the Second Vatican Council, the first one was on liturgy. Very beautiful. And so this document on liturgy and also one called Lumen Gentium, which means the light to the nations, 
which our present pope worked very, very diligently on as well. Um, it makes reference to the Eucharist as the source and the summit of everything we are. Everything we are, which means that everything we are as Catholic goes back to this. So when we talk about the real presence, what we believe is that Jesus Christ is fully present, bodied, blood, soul, and divinity. And that is included in the, in the blood as well. This is important. That's an important point that we believe you do not have to receive both to receive uh, completely Jesus Christ, but that he is fully present in both and both received together as a sign of the fullness of the Blessed Sacrament. Now, if the folks at home want to read a little bit more about the actual church teaching on the Eucharist, they can pick up a copy of the Catechism, and hopefully all of our, our, our good Catholics at home have their Catechism, and they read it uh, <laughs> frequently. But if you go to paragraph 1374, there's a, a, a wonderful basic statement on what the church teaches here. The mode of Christ's presence under the Eucharistic species is unique. It raises the Eucharist above all the sacraments as the perfection of the spiritual life and the end to which all the sacraments tend. In the most blessed sacrament of the Eucharist, the body and blood, together with the soul and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ, and therefore the whole Christ, is truly, really, and substantially contained. So beautiful. the church makes no bones about it. That's, that's why, Father, you would be able to sit as a human in front of the Blessed Sacrament and, uh, and offer adoration, adoration that's due only to God. Mm-hmm. You can adore God in the Blessed Sacrament. That's right. That's right. And sometimes when we think about the fact that after we die, after we die and we go and we kneel before our Lord and we render an account of our life, I think most of us have thought about this. What happens at the moment of our death? That we go before the Lord and render an account of our life and that we kneel before him, and this is exactly what we're doing in adoration as well. We're kneeling before our Lord, completely present there, 100%. And it is, it's so powerful. And people say, well, you know, prove it to me. <laughs> when I go to speak to youth groups a lot, this is one of the things that, that I'll get. You know, Father, prove it to me. Prove it to me. And I will say, if we look at the, the Blessed Sacrament, it looks like bread. If you were to eat it, it tastes like bread. Sometimes you can even taste the wheat. If we, if we consume the precious blood, it, it, it tastes like wine. But what we believe is that the proof comes slowly over time. It changes us. It's kind of like if we look back at a photo of our life, you know, even five, ten years ago. I look back on old photos of me and I said, wow, I've got hair <laughs> back then many years ago. And we can kind of see how we physically have changed. We don't always feel that physical change. Um, on a day-to-day basis, but we physically change. We get older. Our bodies age. And this is the same thing with the Blessed Sacrament, is that the slow exposure to our Lord and the Eucharistic presence slowly changes us. We become configured. We become more Him who we receive, and we become more Eucharistic in ourselves. So the Church has a, uh, a good $3 word for that process. Uh, Tom, do you know what that word is? I think it might be transubstantiation. Very good, Tom. Thank you, Deacon Jeff. <laughs> That's good that Tom has this piece of paper in front of him that says that word on it. <laughs> I'm sorry. I threw him under the bus. Okay, um, So let's talk just a little bit about what – I mean, you described what transubstantiation is, that the, the that, that which makes it bread and that which makes it wine, its substance, its very breadness or wineness, is actually transformed. It's actually changed into the body, blood, soul – 
and divinity of Christ. It still looks like, feels like, tastes like, and smells like like the bread and wine that it was, but its substance is now truly divine in nature. Father, this is a fascinating topic, and we've lots more to discuss after we take a short break, so stay with us. I'm Bess Drzymski, and this is another great moment in church history. Claire Oferduccio was born in 1194, the daughter of a count and countess. When only 18 years old, she heard the preaching of St. Francis of Assisi and was moved to follow the way of the Franciscan brothers and vow herself to a life of poverty, forsaking all the worldly comforts that her family could offer her. She gave herself totally to God, her eternal spouse. Upon the insistence of her friend St. Francis, St. Clair founded the Order of Poor Ladies, later called the Poor Clares. The Poor Clares lived a life of extreme austerity and of absolute poverty. Instead of beds, they slept on twigs with blankets of hemp. The old walls and ceilings were laden with cracks, and the cold and wet weather seeped through. They relied totally on God's generosity to survive. They devoted themselves to prayer in silence. St. Clair's love of the Eucharist was well known. She looked to the presence of Jesus in the Blessed Sacrament as her dearest love. She found great strength in receiving our Lord in Holy Communion and spent many an hour in Eucharistic adoration. Referring to adoration of the Blessed Sacrament, St. Clair said, Gaze upon him, consider him, contemplate him as you desire to imitate him. And she took her own advice to heart. Of St. Clair, Pope John Paul the Great said, Her whole life was a Eucharist, because from her cloister, she raised up continual thanksgiving to God in her prayer, praise, supplication, intercession, weeping, offering, and sacrifice. There are many miracles associated with St. Clair. Tradition tells of an attack from hordes of Saracen mercenaries who were advancing on the convent. She displayed a monstrance containing the Blessed Sacrament and prayed intently before it. Suddenly and inexplicably, the Saracens retreated. Later in her life, her health began to seriously fail. On Christmas Eve, she was not able to attend Holy Mass at the newly constructed Basilica of St. Francis. Instead, God permitted St. Clair to see the entire Mass in a clear and perfect vision on the wall of her small cell. It's no wonder that for this miracle, she was named the patroness of television. Just before dawn on August the 11th, in the year 1253, St. Clair, foundress of the poor Clares, passed quietly into the welcoming arms of Jesus. I'm Bess Trzymski, and this has been another great moment in church history. Welcome back to the Catholic Cafe. Here's Deacon Jeff. And welcome back to the Catholic Cafe. I'm Deacon Jeff, and I'm here with Tom Dorian. Tom, Tom, do you need another banana nut brand muffin? No, Deacon Jeff, five's my limit. Thank you. <laughs> I understand. <laughs> Listen, before we go any further with our guest, Father Ben Bradshaw, I do want to remind uh, everyone that you can visit us on the web at www.thecatholiccafe.com. You will be able to hear this show again 
as well as all our past shows in a variety of formats, including podcasting. We've also conveniently listed several links to a variety of good Catholic resources on the web for your further study, if you so choose. And we invite you to contact us on the web with questions, comments, or topic suggestions. If you'd like to contact me directly, you can do so at Deacon Jeff at the Catholic Cafe. Com. And with that, Father, during our break, actually, you started talking a little bit about all of the activity that's going on in the Vatican in the last several years regarding the Eucharist. Can you give us a little more insight on that? Sure. In, the, in about the last five to six years, there have been five documents that have come out of the really the Holy See, less the Vatican, but what we refer to as the Holy See, with, which is the spiritual authority of, of the, the See of Rome, of of uh, Peter. And the first document was called Mane Dibiscum Domine, and this was issued the year of the Eucharist. And w- recall this was the year after um, the, the year devoted to the Blessed Mother when, when Pope John Paul II instituted the luminous mysteries of the Eucharist. We had the year of the Eucharist, and then we've, have, we've had four more after that, in culminating with John Paul II's last encyclical. He wrote 14 of them. The last one was called Ecclesia and Eucharistia, the Eucharist of the Church. And all of these are specifically to draw us back to a deeper sense of Eucharistic presence and sacredness. Our present Pope wrote a, a book called The Spirit of the Liturgy. I believe it was published in no- 1999. Very, very beautiful. And the, in my opinion, the crux of all these is to draw us back to a sense of the sacred. Of course, they address different things. Some are more logistical in nature and some more mystical and theological. But if we look at the binding element of all these documents... In my opinion, the one common thread is a sense of the sacred, that, that, that our Holy Father and, and Rome is trying to draw us back to a sense of the sacred, that we have great reverence for the Eucharist as a real presence and the source and summit of everything we are. Now, we ended our last segment talking about uh, transubstantiation, a term that was coined by St. Thomas Aquinas way back in the Middle Ages. And a lot of people have... Unfortunately, the mistaken idea that this is when the church started teaching that Jesus Christ was truly, really, and substantially present in the Eucharist. Now, Father, I, I think I know the answer to this, but is this the case? That, that is not the case. And in fact, if we go all the way back to the Acts of the Apostles, we, we are told that the, act, that the apostles, they broke bread together, that they were breaking in the bread. And even in the, the, uh, in the Gospel of Luke, when it says that they, in the road to Emmaus, when the disciples, they recognized Jesus in the breaking of the bread. And this is so beautiful because the church has always taught the transubstantiation, but it was not until really St. Thomas Aquinas uh, articulated this in such a beautiful way that when we talk about transubstantiation, we just think, well, what does it sound like? The substance is transformed, that it becomes the body, blood, soul, and divinity. And so we have always taught this, we've always believed this, and even if we go back to some of the earlier councils, we've had 21 ecumenical councils, with our last one being the Second Vatican Council. Some of the, some of the, the councils in the early church, they addressed this in such a beautiful way, and, and, and Pope St. Leo the Great and Gregory the Great and some of the great, great uh, patristic fathers that we've had up until the 6th century, I believe, culminating with St. Isidore around that time, Beautiful, beautiful documents addressing the real presence of Jesus. Well, that's a great point. And a lot of people don't realize the volume of information that we have, that which was written down for later generations, 
from those early church fathers. Right. Who were the church fathers, by the way? Who are they? Usually when we refer to the church fathers, we're talking about what we call the patristic fathers, and that comes from the word pater, meaning father, right? And they generally go, there's some, some books will date them at different periods, but generally speaking, they go up until the 6th century, 6th or 7th century, with St. Isidore being the last. And they form, they form in some ways the, the, uh, the teaching, the foundation of what we believe. Very, very beautiful. And when the, we believe that when the patristic fathers, when they concur on something repeatedly, that it becomes a definitive teaching of our faith. And all of the patristic fathers, all of them, they agree in the real presence of Jesus Christ. And I do actually have some, some samples here. Uh, and some of them go way back. We have St. Ignatius of Antioch. Uh, this is uh, from his letter to the Smyrnaeans, uh, which was around 110 A.D. Mm-hmm. And he says, Heretics abstain from Eucharist and from prayer because they do not confess that the Eucharist is the flesh of our Savior Jesus Christ. And then St. Justin Martyr, around 151 A.D., this is his first apology. He says, and he's referring to this food that we call the Eucharist. He says... For we do not receive these things as common bread or common drink, but as Jesus Christ our Savior, being incarnate by God's word, took flesh and blood for our salvation, so also we have been taught that the food consecrated by the word of prayer, which comes from him, from which our flesh and blood are nourished by transformation, is the flesh and blood of that incarnate Jesus. He's, he's not messing around there. He's telling, <laughs> the, he's telling the truth. And then St. Irenaeus says around 180 A.D., he has declared the cup a part of his creation to be his own blood from which he causes our blood to flow and the bread a part of creation he has established as his own body from which he gives increase to our bodies. And I think it's interesting that St. Irenaeus talking about the Eucharist, you know, a lot of people think, well, maybe they got it wrong. Well, we know from his history and actually from St. Irenaeus's writings as well, that he was a disciple and a follower of Polycarp. Yeah, and one of the fact, disciples of John. That's right, and, and Polycarp was taught by John. So what we would have to say, if, if Irenaeus got it totally wrong, that, <laughs> that's, that's pretty close to the original source mm-hmm. for that particular writing. That's right. For it to be wrong. That's you know, right. we can look back at our own history. We can look back at things that, that George Washington wrote, that Abraham Lincoln wrote. And that's about the same time period we're talking about. Mm-hmm. And we don't doubt that they said those words. Mm-hmm. That's you a good know? point. And if That's you're right talking right. about an entire teaching like the Eucharist, something so vastly important in such a huge part of the Catholic faith, and to get it wrong, you'd think there'd be an outcry mm-hmm. from others saying, no, no, heresy, heresy, you're, you're speaking <laughs> untruths. But you see none of that. In fact, you see time and time again, I have so many more quotes that we can't read, we don't have time to do it. But time and time again... That teaching is affirmed by all of the church fathers. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. And, you know, you've got Justin Martyr here. He's writing to Antonius Pius, one of the, and, and Marcus Aurelius. He writes and talks about the liturgy. And the, the format that he talks about is so beautiful because this is going all the way back to the second century. And our Mass is very, very similar to what he even talked about way back then. Very beautiful. Mm-hmm. Well, that leads us a little bit now, if we could just talk for a second about John 6 again. And one of the most important things about that particular piece of Scripture, the things that, one of the things that affected me in my coming back home to Rome was the understanding that Jesus let some disciples walk away from him. That, that to me, is, uh, 
is a sort of a profound. Pretty, pretty powerful. Exactly right. So he tells them that he's, he promises the Eucharist. He tells them this is, this is his flesh and his blood. But still they walk away and he lets them go. What are our thoughts about that, Father? It's very, very beautiful because we can look at this one passage in many different ways. The closest thing that I can think of, especially those that, that are maybe listening that are married uh, or in relationships, you know, you can't force someone to love you. Love is a definitive act of the will. We cannot force our spouse to love us. It is, is it a choice? It is, we have the freedom to love and to go out of ourselves. Love instinctually goes out of itself. It is absolutely impossible that we keep it in. It's absolutely impossible. It wants to go out of ourselves like a shout on the mountaintop. And this is our Lord. And he's saying, he doesn't force them. He said, guys, wait, wait, wait. That's just an analogy. You know, he, he lets them choose. He respects their freedom, their choice. And it's quite possible. Who knows? Maybe some of them came back. Maybe some of them rediscovered as, as time went on that, maybe, you know, Jesus was right. We don't know. What we do know is that our Lord lets them go. And sometimes when we preach the truth, when we talk about the truth of our faith, this is tough stuff. I mean, it's not an easy time to be a Christian, let alone a Catholic. And, and, and so when we talk about some, some very difficult things, we have to accept the fact that sometimes people are just simply going to reject our message. And we can't be uh, codependent, so to speak, on them accepting that message. Mm -hmm. We have to say this is what we believe in truth. In fact, the next encyclical of our Holy Father is, is um, uh, Caritatis and Veritate, and truth and charity, truth and love. And, and this is one of the things I would assume that our Holy Father would address as well. Well, Father Ben, this has certainly been an enlightening conversation. But obviously, Tom, will you agree with me that the conversation is not done? Oh, I definitely think this uh, merits another uh, visit. Exactly right. And <laughs> as you can imagine, we have so much more to uh, talk about on the subject of the Eucharist. It's, it's placing the church and its purpose in our lives. And so, uh, Father, we just want to ask you if you'll come back and visit us soon in the luxurious corner booth uh, for this and so mm. many other topics. Will you do that for to. us? I'd love to. Thank you so much. Tom, did you Thank take you. a lot of notes? I took plenty of notes. <laughs> well, Thank I you, did, Father. I did, too. And thanks again, Father Ben Bradshaw. Uh, now, as always, let's close in prayer, asking God to send forth his spirit to enter our hearts and allow his truth to fill us to overflowing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all that you have given us. We thank you for our families and our friends. and We thank you for this beautiful day. But we thank you most of all, Father, for the gift of your Son. Send us payment for our sins so that we may spend eternity in praise and worship of you. Father, open the eyes of our hearts and allow us to see fully the truth that you have revealed to us today. Help us to follow Jesus, that we may come to know him more fully in this great mystery of the church. We ask you to grant this through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to The Catholic Cafe. If you'd like to contact Deacon Jeff, send an email to deaconjeff at thecatholiccafe.com. The Catholic Cafe is brought to you by the Order of Malta Federal Association and is broadcast with ecclesial permission from J. Terry Stive, Bishop of Memphis in Tennessee. Join us again at The Catholic Cafe. There's always room for one more at our table.